Hi, this is Bill Arnold. Missed a show or need me talking to help you sleep tonight? I have several solutions to that situation. Here are the podcasts from the show. You are the best for listening and supporting Faith Radio. Welcome to Afternoons with me. I'm Bill Arnold, and I'm usually one of the most blessed people in December when Ace Collins makes time for me, and he does every year to talk about some of his uh, books, like the stories behind the best love songs of Christmas, stories behind the great traditions of Christmas. We just sort of get lost in storytelling. He is a consummate storyteller. He's written, I think, nearly 100 books, maybe a little more, maybe a little less. We'll find out for sure when we bring him on, but he is... uh, and he's got written bestsellers. He is um, uh, publishes new titles each year. I don't know how he does it, to be honest. But he's uh, not only uh, written books, but he's appeared on television. And it's always great to have him on the program. I'm not used to having him on in August, so I'm thrilled he's with me. Ace, welcome. Hey, it's great to be there. And and we're at 99 right now. 100 will come out in February. So uh, we've got a couple coming up. And I, I think I don't know which one of the two that are finished will actually come out first, so I, I don't know which one is going to be 100, but I didn't realize that until about a year ago when I was somebody asked me how many books you'd written, and I told them about 60, and then I, <laughs> then I went over to my shelf and, and, and started counting and realized it, it was more than that. It kind of sneaks up on you. Yeah, um, I understand. You know, it, it, it is, you know, we ta- you talked about the stories behind the best love songs of Christmas, uh, excuse me, songs of Christmas, and then the stories behind the great traditions of Christmas that we always talk about. Right. Uh, being on your radio show has become one of my Christmas traditions. Sweet. So, I mean, you know, that is uh, and a tradition I look forward to each and every year as well. Uh, it is a, uh, you know, it, it, I don't do much besides radio interviews in November and December about Christmas, and I can't think of a better way to spend that point in that part of the year. That wow. is just a, a delightful thing that comes back and revisits me each and every year. I, and uh, yeah. And today we're wide open. We can literally talk about anything. Well, the and, nice and, thing the nice thing about this Ace is when I go to your your library of books that you've written, I was working on the show for today and we talked about uh kindness in the first hour um where you know Paul says be kind and tender hearted toward one another and, and we need to love one another and be kind and then I'm remembering that you wrote a book called Sticks and Stones, Using Your Words as a Positive Force. Yeah. I would love to, yeah, that and, I'd love to hear that about that book. Yeah, that and Gratitude were both books that had that same th- theme. Um, <clears throat> I discovered several years ago that we use, on average, 30,000 words a day. That's how, most of, that's how much most of us say. There are people who say less. There are people who say more. But 30,000 is the average. And, you know, I got to thinking with 30,000 words, we need to be concentrating on how we can make each one of those words mean something to someone. And and so it becomes a matter of lifting up uh, rather than putting down. And and the book talks about, you know, how to use those words, be it a text, be it an email, be it a thank you note. And I think today, why don't we focus on what I just said? And that's thank you notes, because. I think they're one of the still one of the most powerful tools ever. People rarely get letters anymore. 
Um, and if they get a thank you note, it means much more than even it did 10 years ago, 20 years ago, 40 years ago. Um, picture this. You've seen somebody do something that's remarkable. Maybe it was helps. Maybe it was help somebody across the street who was having problems getting across the street. Maybe it was carrying groceries, a teenager carrying groceries to someone's car. Maybe it was doing something like that. If you know that teenager and you witness that and you know the address to write them, write them a thank you note saying, hey, I saw that act that you did. I saw how you helped that woman. I saw what you did. And I want you to tell you how it blessed me and how it made my heart feel and how proud I was to know you. You'd be surprised the effect that'll have. It'll encourage people to do that over and over again. There are people in your life right now, no matter who you are, that have had a dramatic, dramatic impact in your career, in your relationship. Maybe they introduced you and your spouse. There are lots of different ways that people have impacted your life that have probably never heard a thank you for it from you. And to sit down and, and write a thank you to them, three or four or five lines, and just send it off in the mail. Imagine their feelings when they're getting a thank you for something they did for you, maybe when you were a high school student and they encouraged you, maybe when you were uh, starting out in the business world and they encouraged you, maybe introducing you to someone who had such a profound impact on your own life. I actually had one year several years ago when I vowed I was going to write 365 thank you notes that year. <laughs> and, and it was really good for me because I sat down every day and wrote a thank you note for somebody who had impacted my life. And, and the first thank you note I remember that year was to my high school English teacher who encouraged me to write. And she had not heard from me probably in 15, 20 years. I actually had to track down her address on the on the Internet and it began there and it continued to go. And I had other people were writing me back that I hadn't contacted in years and contacted me. So it also allowed me to regrow relationships uh, that had been lost by time and distance. So I, I think a thank you note is one of the most powerful ways that we can make a positive impact with our words uh, at any time of the year. And especially during the times that we're facing again with the resurgence and COVID and other things, people are kind of lonely. They, you know, you can call them, but if they get something in the mail, that's, that's kind of a big deal. And, uh, uh, the other thing I encourage you to do too, is you, if you've got a grandparent, uh, we, this weekend, we buried my father-in-law who was one of the, uh, you know, the most incredible men that I've ever known. He was a very generous, open, welcoming human being. I, I said that at his funeral and, um, I had fortunately written him a thank you note about two years ago for all the things that he had done to me. And he had, he had talked to me several times about what that note meant to him because I'd outlined it. I, I remember writing a similar note years and years ago to my grandfather and my grandmother asked me to read that note. It was just three or four paragraphs long at his funeral. It's amazing what a thank you note can mean to someone just knowing they've touched your heart. And if that person is about to give up touching people, maybe they'll keep touching people because they realized, hey, I touched this person 21 years ago, and it still made an impact in their life. And Ace Collins is my guest. Ace, when you talk about writing notes, now you're a writer, so you've an unfair advantage over all of us. But when you write your Christmas cards, I find that to be what I would love to be able to do someday. I don't know if I have the discipline or the patience, but uh, 
tell everyone what you do when it comes to your Christmas cards. Well, my Christmas card, if, if you're, we, I send out about 240 Christmas cards a year. And if I send them out to someone, it's because I know them because they've made an impact in my life because they've done something for me. So I will sit down and remember something uh, from our past that connects us a, a way that uh, I can tell them the impact they made in my life. And I'll just write two or three sentences in each card about that. And if, if it's somebody who's a current friend that I see all the time, I'll make a mention of, of what I've seen them do uh, in the last year or two uh, that impacted me and made a difference in my life. It may not be for me. I, in most, time, most cases with close friends, it's watching them do something for someone else. Um, I just think it's kind of something that we can all do to encourage others. I, I remember several years ago, I was reading about a Down syndrome uh, man who was about 40 years old who sacked groceries. And, and, and we talked about him in the book. And, and he, um, he would start every day by writing a Bible verse on a piece of paper and putting it in, um, in a bag. And he would, all the bags he, he sacked had Bible verses in them. And then after a while, when he, he ran out of favorite Bible verses, he started finding uh, uplifting personal statements by, be it Mark Twain or, you know, various various people over the years and put those in there and people would wait in line at the grocery store to have him sack their groceries because they wanted to get home and see what was in their bag. In other words, when other lines were open, they would wait for him. And I, I think, you know, that's similar to what I do with my Christmas cards. It's just, and I've done that for 20 some odd years now. The other thing I do with my Christmas card every year is I, I stick something from history in it. Uh, this last year, I found sheets of 1945 uh, Christmas seals, and I get sent each person a 1945 Christmas seal, and and then had a little outline of what was going on in 1945. Um, you know, that was 75 years ago. Then what was going on, and what the world was like, and how it was the first Christmas was out without war, and there really was for a change, peace on earth, and uh, kind of telling them a little bit about what Christmas would have been for their grandparents, you know, and uh, so that that's another thing that you can just use your words to, in a very positive way, show the blessings that we have now and also show the, uh, show the history of what relatives went through uh, years and years ago. My biggest challenge at Christmas cards, by the way, was about five years ago, and I decided I was not going to send out any Christmas cards that were printed after 1945. <laughs> and I had to haunt antique stores and everything else finding Christmas cards from the 1920s, 30s, and 40s. And I wanted to send out antique Christmas cards, and people held on to them. They actually used them as decorations and stuff to show them what Christmas cards were like, you know, 100 years ago or 75 years ago. Yeah. So, uh, you know, give them something that's just not a little – Something to hold on to, I guess. Is, yeah. And that's what a thank you note is. People keep those. They hang on. Yeah, Ace, that's so creative. And obviously it shows them that you're taking an initiative, you're doing something different, and you're uh, putting something of great value and letting them know you care about them and think about them. That's a beautiful gesture. I want to continue to talk a little bit more about this. I want to take a break, Ace, when we come back. When we talk about uh, words that can shape uh, a person in a very positive way, I would love for you to tell the story of the basketball player and the difference she made in the life of another player okay. on her on her team. Yeah. Ace Collins is my guest. We're chatting about one of his, uh, let's see, 99 books. This one is called Sticks and Stones, Using Your Words as a Positive Force. We'll be right back.
I have as my guest Ace Collins. He is a consummate storyteller and author. You need to go to acecollins.com, acecollins.com. He's got a catalog of 99 books he's uh, written with the 100th one coming out any day now. Um, and we're... Uh, we're yeah, in February, actually. So. That's any day. In, yeah, okay. in my world, Ace, that's any day. <laughs> I mean, you look at the way time goes. It's so fast that feels like it's tomorrow. Anyway, um, Sticks and Stones is one of the books in your catalog, Using Your Words as a Positive Force. Uh, you tell a story about a basketball player that used her words in a positive way. This story just blows me away. Yeah, there's so many different with the stories about Shaylee Lenning that you can tell. Shaylee now is in her 30s. She used to play in the WNBA and is now just uh, about two years ago finished her um, master's in seminary and is counseling people and is just a incredible um, force in my life. But Shaylee was once just a small-town Kansas basketball player at a school in Sublette, Kansas, and, and, and folks – it's when you play for small schools, it's hard to get noticed. And um, she was somebody who was the player on the team. Uh, as a matter of fact, her um, she set all kinds of scoring records. She was just dynamic. I mean, about five foot seven, five foot eight, uh, homecoming queen as well. So really, really cute, and had so much going for. Her. But the problem was, it's hard to get noticed, even when you win, even when you're winning basketball games. In her junior year, they were on their way to the state championship. I mean, if they played hard enough and well enough, they were going to win. And, but the problem is, they had, an, uh, she was pretty much the basketball team, and they had three players that complemented her pretty well. And there was a, there was another player out there who wasn't very good. And that happens in a small town, um, you know. And every night, Shaley would throw the ball two or three times. And this girl would fumble it away, dribble it out of bounds, make a bad pass. And and this went on for a while. And the coach came over and said, Shaylee, we only have her out there because they require us to have five players. Don't throw the ball to her. And so, but Shaylee every night kept throwing the ball. And they were winning at that time, so it didn't matter that much. But the coach decided to call her parents and see if her parents could talk some sense into her. And uh, the parents tried. And uh, Shaylee kept throwing the ball. And to her, and then the, he, the coach really got desperate at that time. And so he knew that Shaylee went to the uh, Catholic church with her mom in the morning and the Baptist church with her friends at night. So she called. <laughs> so he called in the priest and the pastor <laughs> and they took Shaylee out to eat and basically told her, I don't know which one of them said this. Neither one would admit it, but one of them actually probably said the words very close to these. God does not want you to throw the ball to Ashley. Um, anyway, Shaley continued to do that, and it came down to the state championship game, and the team that was covering Shaley was doing a really good job that night. She was not scoring her normal 30-some-odd points, but she threw to Ashley several times, and the key shots in the game were all made by Ashley. And after the game, uh, Shaley came out after the award ceremony and stuff, and her parents and the coach and the priest and the pastor were all standing in a circle, and she walked up to him and she said, uh, uh, basically this, if I spent my whole year working with Ashley, knowing I was going to need her at some point. And tonight we needed her and she came through. And, and so she believed in this girl when no one else did. Uh, then she also added, 
And all I was doing all season long was feeding the least of these, living out Matthew 25, 35 through 40. And, <laughs> and, 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 and it was a great lesson. And it was that lesson and that dynamic that got back to Kansas State University, who was not going to offer Shalia scholarship. No major university was. And, uh, but they found out about the way that she led. They found out about the words that she spoke. They found out she was president of Fellowship for Christian Athletes, number one in her class. And they took her because of her character. And ultimately speaking, three years later, she was Big 12 Player of the Year and would have a pro, and would have a pro career as well, even though she was undersized. And um, Shaylee remains one of my favorite people in the entire world. And, and you know, you're asking me to talk about Shaylee reminds me of another basketball story. Uh, and you being a basketball person will appreciate this. I've never told this story to you. And it's a guy that I met probably 25 years ago. Uh, his name was Ron Ballard. Uh, Ron was from Fort Worth, Texas, went to Fort Worth Poly High School back in the early 1950s. And he was tall, six foot four, six foot five, blue eyed, dark haired, good looking, and was a star on the basketball team. He, he was the person when they, he entered a room, everybody looked at him. He was just gravitated toward him. He had that natural leadership part. He was active in his church, uh, just a dynamic all-American young man. And he ultimately got offered scholarships to several places and chose to go to the University of Houston. He went down there his freshman year. About that time, you couldn't play basketball on the varsity team as, as a freshman. So he was playing. He was, you know, kind of waiting out that year playing on, on the freshman team. Went back to see a uh, friend of his play at what is now Tarleton State University, except his friend was playing football. After the game that night, he decided to drive back to uh, Fort Worth to see his parents. And there was a man who had gotten drunk and hopped on a horse and was riding a horse down the highway. And Ron's car hit that horse. He couldn't avoid it. The horse came by and hit Ron, landed on top of Ron's car. <laughs> By the time they got him to the hospital in Fort Worth, they thought he would be dead, but because he was an athlete in really good shape, he managed to live. But he was totally and completely paralyzed from the neck down. Oh my. So a man who had spent his life in athletics now could not even move his finger. Um, they told his mom and they told his dad that Ron would not live through the night. He did. Then they told him he would die within a week he didn't. He lived again for a week. And probably because he was he was an athlete is why he continued to live. Eventually, they took him home. Now, remember, this is in the early 1950s. Uh, there were, the world did not have access for people who were paralyzed at all. You know, that was not something that they had access to. And, and so what ultimately um, happened was they, uh, they left him home to die. He told me that he learned how to count how many holes there were in the ceiling as far as the text, the tiled ceiling and stuff. And he got bored. And one person came by to see him. His friends didn't know what to say, so they didn't come by. And that person was a Sunday school teacher. And she would give him a Sunday school lesson every Sunday. And he said, you know, I'd like to go to Sunday school again. Well, four deacons picked this big guy up the next week and put him his wheelchair in a pickup truck and took him to church. There were 17 steps up the front of the Sagamore Hill Baptist Church. They lugged him up, all 17 of them, and put him on the back of the church so he could watch a service 
and they forgot to set the lock on his wheelchair. And before the service even began, he rolled down the aisle to rededicate his life, (laughs) hitting that first step and falling out of the chair. He went back home that day, and he, when the next time the Sunday school teacher came by, he, he asked her, Are there, is there anybody else like me? And she said, yeah, there are a lot of people like you who came back from World War II and are now coming back from Korea who, are, who are, have handicaps. There are blind people and stuff like that. And Ron Ballard, in his bed, started coming up with a plan. And over the course of the next two or three months, literally built it in his head, then called in the deacon board from that church and said, I want to create a church that's barrier-free. And they built a church called Crusaders Chapel that had uh, wide doors. It had handicapped parking. It had curb cuts. It had all these things that had never been thought of before that that Ron thought of. And it became the first barrier-free building in the South. And that first Sunday, they had 12 people there, and it grew from there. And it's still, it is still going on to this day. And because of what Ron Ballard thought of, this, the, the city of Fort Worth started figuring out how to create buses that wheelchairs could get on and started opening up city buildings with ramps. And Ron started a movement that really took off about a year later in Baltimore, Maryland, when they found out about it. And so every time you see a handicapped parking place and every time that you see a curb cut and you see doors that are that open for people, it is Ron Ballard's vision, a man who was sent home to die, that created that, a man who had lost all of his abilities to move. He eventually learned how to type and do other things with his mouth using a pencil, formed three different businesses that hired handicapped individuals before anyone else hired handicapped individuals for real estate, for a call services, uh, for phone answering operations. And when before he died, when he was in his 80s, about 10, 12 years ago, Ron had given employment opportunities for hundreds of handicapped people like himself. Wow. Ace, that's so powerful. We're going to take a little break. When we come back, lots more with Ace Collins, author of 99 books, 100's on the way in February. Can hardly wait to get that one in my hands. We're going to continue to talk about his book, Sticks and Stones, Using Your Words as a Positive Force. Be right back. makes me happy to talk to Ace Collins. I do it most of the time during the Christmas season, November, December, and he is extremely generous to come on um, in those times because I know he's so busy. He does radio interviews one after another because he's written 
of best-selling books on traditions of Christmas and songs of Christmas, and every is, everyone's clamoring to get him on the show, and I'm just like one of those people that want him on. But I thought now, um, he's written 99 books, 100 coming out in February. He's a consummate storyteller. I love, just during the break, Rosie was saying, boy, he really is a great storyteller. And I said, I know, I know. One of the books he he wrote is called Sticks and Stones, Using Your Words as a Positive Force. I- yeah, uh, Bill. Bill, let's talk about something that's funny too. I mean, okay. you know, there, we, we talk about inspirational stuff and stuff like this, but there are things that we say without thinking because you, you know, use your words as a positive force. Right. That you may say all your life and hear all your life, and ultimately speaking, they don't make sense. Um, <laughs> okay, give me an example. Mike, whenever I, I would misplace something or something like that, or I couldn't find something, my grandmother would always tell me, "It will be the last place you look." <laughs> uh, yeah. Of course, it's going to be the last place you look because you're not going to continue to look <laughs> once you find it. You know, and it's like, right. you know, what do you do? Come back and tell your grandmother. Actually, it was in the third to last place I looked. <laughs> I found it. Look two other places. <laughs> you know. Uh, yeah. Yeah. But one of the one of the sayings you hear a lot is "Give until it hurts," and, and I I I've always thought that was a little bit off. And and I think what you do, I think we should be saying "Give until it helps," because. You know, we're talking about the pain that it hurts on us. Uh, a lot of times, if we quit giving, if we give up, if we, you know, if it starts hurting and we quit, we haven't given long enough. And I, I think we continue to give until it helps. And and that's kind of a, a life lesson I've noticed in other people that they've given a lot and it hasn't come through. But what they've done is they haven't quit giving. They've just kind of refocused and 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 use their talents or their gifts in a different direction. And I think that refocusing is something that's very, very important. Uh, the, you and I talk about the stories behind the best love songs of Christmas all the time. People who talk to me about that book, and that book sold over a million copies, and has it goes on the bestseller list for holidays every year. You know, it, it, has, it has been very, very good to us. But what they don't know, most of them, is I pitched that book for 10 years and nobody bought it. I've, I've got 27 rejections on that book before I found a publisher. And and if you really believe in a concept and you believe in an idea or you believe in a person or you believe in your faith, you don't let one rejection stop you. You continue to pitch it. You may rewrite that proposal a little bit if it's a book or you may reshape the way you ap- approach someone a little bit, but you continue to do what you believe. And eventually you're going to find somebody who could listen. I remember in the stories behind the best love songs of Christmas, I had written a book uh, for um, Zondervan, HarperCollins imprint, uh, about the Cathedral Quartet. It was a work for hire project and it went to several printings for George and Glenn Yance, who, and George Payne and Glenn Yance, who were in the Cathedral Quartet, an incredible gospel group back in the 80s, 90s, and early 2000s. And uh, when I finished, uh, Cindy Lambert uh, called me. She was an acquisitions editor. And she said, have you ever thought about doing the stories behind the best love gospel music songs? And being somewhat of a smart aleck, I reached into a file cabinet that we were using. That was 1998. So we were using fax machines a lot. I pulled out the rejection letter that that company had sent me two years before for that idea, and I faxed it to her. <laughs> and I waited for Touché the fax machine to beep, and I started, and I waited for her to start laughing. And that's when I said, "As a matter of fact, Cindy, I have." And, uh, 
And, and and then it, that book went into four printings. It was called Turn Your Radio On. It was a, it's a really neat book that's still in print today. And and Cindy came back to me with these words, is there anything else we rejected we should have bought? <laughs> and that's when I was able to pitch the stories behind the best love songs of Christmas again, because now I had ears ready to hear and eyes ready to see uh, on that end. And uh, we went back and forth and they still weren't sure about it because Christmas is a, such a short selling season of about five, six weeks. And I basically told them I'd take very little advance just to be able to write the book. And so they wouldn't have much invested in it. And it took it off at three, hit number three on Amazon. I did all this other stuff, but it was a project that I believed in 10 years before it actually sold. And I, I think that is very important for all of us who think, well, nobody's hearing me when I'm sharing my faith or nobody's hearing me when I've got this idea or no, no one's hearing me when I'm trying to be a friend. I, I think what it amounts to is don't give up just because you get rejected once or twice. You know, continue to to push and plod until you find the right ears or find or find somebody who can see your vision and hear what you're saying. And, and that was the lesson I learned then. I, I joke, I tell people all the time, I tell college students this because we, during non-COVID times, feed between 50 and 70 college kids at our house every Sunday night. And, and I, I, I use this example and tell them that my uh, my dating career in, in college prepared me for my career as a writer because I would call people and ask them out and get rejected a lot. Uh, you know, and so that is that is the way I kind of get them in tune with 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 my thoughts and my ideas. But that's another example of finding some way that you can relate to somebody who may be not from the same era that you're from or not from the same part of the world. And eventually you find out, hey, we've all got something in common if you just find the right words to say to them. Ace, would you say that you've got a fair amount of resilience? Because from what I'm hearing, you, you, you deal with rejection pretty well. Uh, writers do, do have to deal with rejection. And I, that's one of the things I tell college students all the time when I talk to colleges, college kids, is if, you're, if you can't take rejection, you don't need to be in this business. Because even to this day, uh, even after the success we've had, probably uh, nine out of ten of my ideas get turned down. And so uh, I've got I've I've just fin- I finished during COVID time writing a novel that is the best novel I've ever written. I guarantee it's the best thing I've ever done. Most creative thing I've ever done. I've, we've got nine rejections on it so far. Nobody's seen nobody's seen it yet. I mean, nobody has seen the potential in it yet. It may take another two or three years and a lot more rejections before we find somebody who who's willing to uh, uh, who sees it like we do. And it's very creative. It's it's concept that is it's different than anything else out out there. And I knew when I wrote it, it was going to take a very special person to understand the potential it had and and get the message. And, and I just think that. That's true. No matter what profession you're in, it's true that you are going to get rejected. And the people who live their dreams are the people who don't let rejection stop them. I remember, you know, you know, I love love basketball. You know, uh, Michael Jordan got cut from his high school team one time. I mean, you know, think about that. You know, a lot of kids would have just turned around. Well, I got cut from the team. I'm quitting. (laughs) Yeah. This is Michael Jordan we're talking about. Yeah. And so, you know, uh, those are things, you know, uh, I know a bunch of people in the music business who, who, who didn't have hit records for years before they landed their, their first charting song. Um, 
you know, so those are things that, um, you know, the, the great lessons in, in my career has, have been, you really do have to withstand the rejections to get, to gain the acceptance. Uh, and I think that is particularly true of, of us as teachers or leaders or uh, witnesses of our faith. And it's a great reminder when we talk to people about our relationship with Jesus and we put it out there and sometimes we feel people are not listening or paying attention or rejecting what we're saying. And that can be discouraging, but we have to be always aware that we don't know what seeds are being planted and what God is going to do down the road. No, we don't. And that's why we don't give up after one time or 10 times or 15 times. You know, if, if we really believe in it, then it should be something that drives us and, and has us constantly looking for opportunities to share. Yeah, I love the stories that you tell. And I'm curious, as a writer, where you start to come up with characters that appear in your books. The characters in my books, to a large degree, are based on people I've known. Uh, you and I think at one time or in my life may have talked about a, a woman that I knew in college named Nancy. Um, and if we have it, I can fill in the story. But uh, Nancy appeared not only in a couple of my nonfiction books where I told her story, but she was so full of wisdom, I eventually created a character that was based on her in a novel that I, I needed a character that could give wisdom. <laughs> I I've love got, it. I've got a I've got another character in, a, in another novel that was based on a, a girl I knew in high school who went blind, and I needed somebody who could get somebody out of a cave. That, and they, all these people who had all these skills got trapped in a cave with no light. Well, you know, I, Janie had all the skills, and so I used the examples of Janie in real life. You're, you're really honored in my novels, by the way, if I make you a villain. I have friends who I use their names for my villains. <laughs> <laughs> uh, uh, you know, and, and so, you know, they, they, okay, who's going to be the villain next? You know, I, you know, I want my name to be the guy, bad guy this time. So, you know, when I'm writing novels and stuff and I, I write three novels for every nonfiction book I write, you know, those are the kind of things that, uh, I come up with, but the ideas are everywhere. I told somebody once that if I was to write all of the book proposals I've got in my files, I've got to live to 145 if I write four books a year. <laughs> you know, the ideas just keep coming on. I, I came back the other day on a road and I thought of a, a line. Here, we're talking about words here. And I just thought of a very powerful sentence going, the moment when there are no more moments. And I thought, man, that would be the perfect way to begin a novel. And so I came back home and wrote three chapters, all that were inspired and then an outline by those, by that thought. Now, to remember that thought, I had to pull off the side of the road and actually write it down, or I'd have forgotten it by the time I got back home. But you know, that was, uh, you know, the, those, they just. I describe myself as a raccoon in human form because I'm always moving and I'm always, I'm never still. And I, I think the ideas, kind of go that way too. And, and so, um, they're just always flowing. Getting back, I mentioned Nancy. I might as well tell you about Nancy. Yeah, I do want to hear the Nancy, her wisdom. Uh, I was a uh, sophomore in college when I first met Nancy Sorrell. She was a five-foot-one-inch, blue-eyed blonde, and she had the energy that I had never seen in a person in my life. If you told Nancy she couldn't do something, she would stick out her bottom lip and prove you wrong. Mm. Uh, I asked her out six different times, no, five different times, um, and I never could get a date with her because 
I never ask her out soon enough. I would ask her out a week or week and a half ahead of time, and she already had the, the next two weeks booked up. <laughs> I mean, that's how popular she was. You know, mm -hmm. Nancy was an amazing woman. Uh, besides the the fact that she was really really cute and, and and lively, she also spoke about 240 words a minute with gust up to 360. <laughs> uh, just you know, this incredible treasure. So even though we never went out, we became very, very good friends. And, and even after we both graduated, my wife and I be, stayed close to Nancy. Well, when Nancy was a teaching her first year, she got cancer. And that cancer robbed her of an opportunity to have children of her own. And so Nancy beat that cancer. And she was back in the classroom the next year. Things went along good until she was 29 and the cancer came back. This time in her uh, one of her kidneys. She lost her kidneys, one of her kidneys. And... But toughened it out. You never missed any days in the classroom. And we stayed in touch, and she continued to inspire me. When she was 33, the cancer came back a third time, and this time there was not going to be any beating it. And uh, we, I asked her one time, I said, Nancy, do you ever say, why me? And she said, no. She says, no, I say, why not me? And uh, she said, because I've been saved. I know where I'm going. I've got the strength. I've got the character. And besides, even if I didn't have all that stuff, I would rather me have this than somebody that I know and love. Wow. And so Nancy was just a remarkable human being. Uh, we continued to talk on a regular basis. And the last time I talked to her was the night before she died. And her parents called me after she died. And uh, here was this person who had provided me with all these jokes. As a matter of fact, the last time we talked, she said, someday we're going to have you and I are going to have to write a book together. And I said, Nancy, a lot of people beat cancer. You're going to have to do something special, like run a marathon. She said, okay, <laughs> we'll run a marathon. You know, we'll do that, too. Uh -huh. and, and so and so, just she had that kind of joking personality all the time, that positive, upbeat personality. And her her mother and called me, and she said, can you get to Houston in two days for the funeral? And I said, sure, I'm going to be there. And she said, well, Nancy asked for one thing only at the funeral, and that was to be for you to be a pallbearer. And so I, uh, my wife and I went down to Houston. Uh, I was a pallbearer at the time. I was 33 years old. All the other pallbearers were over 70. Uh, I didn't know what that was all about, you know. I uh, but after I loaded after the service of celebration of her life, I loaded the coffin into the hearse, and Nancy's mother pulled me to the side, and she said, "I just want you to know that Nancy requested you to be a pallbearer." And I said, "Well, I appreciate it." And she said, "Do you want to know why?" And I said, "Yes, I do." <laughs> And she said, well, she said when you were in college, you asked her out five different times and never could take her out. She thought you deserved to take her out at least once. <laughs> I, I, after, the, after the grade side service, where I am actually laughing and trying to suppress it while everybody else is crying, I went back home and wrote a story called Why Not Me that eventually ended up in Plus Magazine. And it was the story of my relationship with Nancy and, and the, all the lessons I had learned from her. And over the course of the next 10 years, that, that, that uh, magazine story won Angel of the Angel of Excellence. or so It won the Angel Award for the best inspirational story written whatever year that was. Nice. And then, and then uh, MD Anderson Hospital, where Nancy was treated, asked if they could use it and uh, in a reprinted form, which they did. And they gave it to every cancer patient who went through the, that hospital over the next 10 years. And so Nancy continued to touch people with her life long after that. Now, I was just the vessel who carried Nancy's story. Mm -hmm. It's Nancy's story that was making the impact. It's Nancy's, it was Nancy who actually won that award. 
But I had the privilege and the honor of carrying that story. And still, I think back of every time I think of her, I still laugh, I still chuckle, and I still grin because of the positive force she was. That's beautiful. Not just in my life, but lots of other lives as well. That's beautiful. Ace Collins is my guest. We're going to take a little break. We'll continue uh, with him in just a minute. We're talking about kindness and powerful stories of transformation. We'll be right back. storytelling and no one does it better than ace collins he's my guest you should go to acecollins.com look at his library of books he's a novelist and he's written all kinds of uh, 99 books 100 coming out in february he's one of the foremost authorities on lassie yeah (laughs) (laughs) yeah i I always i always figured that's how my biography will read lassie's biographer and that's how my obituary will read lassie's biographer dies Uh, (laughs) you know that's um you know that was a you know, for a baby boomer, that's that's a lot of fun to write, you know, to I got to write a book on Lassie and meet Roy and Dale in the same year. I mean, you know, how can you beat that? Yeah. Uh, um, you know, I'm, I'm reading a book right now by Don Reed of the Statler Brothers called Life Lessons. He sent it to me yesterday. And uh, it is a incredible book that I recommend for people who want little short. It's it's things that, you know. He's a legend as the Statler brother when he was with the Statler brothers. But he also, during that entire time he was with the Statler brothers as their lead singer, he was also still teaching Sunday school at the church he grew up in. And these are lessons that he learned in teaching Sunday school lessons and, and, and observing people there. And uh, so if I've got a recommendation for you all today, Life Lessons by Don Reed is my recommenda- recommendation that's not one of my books. Mm-hmm. And by the way, the book that's going to come out in February on Tyndall, is a devotional book. It's aimed at men. Very, There are very few devotional books aimed at men, and they came to me and asked if I would do a devotional book written around classic cars. And oh. so it is going to have the stories of different kinds of cars that are classic cars and wrap the lessons of how those cars were created up into a, a lesson of faith that people can live because there are so many Christian car clubs and everything else. And and a great way to get to somebody who loves cars but doesn't know someone is to present. You know, I think we'll be to be able to use this book to open the door to talk about faith a little bit too. Now, Ace, have you written that book, or you're in the process? Oh yeah, I, just, it, I finished it uh, in uh, last December, so it comes out next February. This oh, coming February. Okay, can you can you tease us with an example out of that book? Oh gosh, you know there there's so many different ways that you can get. I, I, Henry Ford, uh, you know, when he created the Model T, created the universal car. And if you think about that, that is, you know, that that's pretty remarkable. He he, when cars were made for rich people, he wanted to create a car, and everybody said it wouldn't work because um, it took money to buy a car. But he created a car that was universal. That was, you know, that was what it was called. And and in doing so, just like Jesus opened up a relationship with God for everyone, Henry Ford opened up an opportunity to drive the road for everyone. And and I think that's one of the most remarkable uh, changes in the way that American consumers looked, and American manufacturers looked at consuming, 
And I, you know, at the, the, the lesson at the end of it just reads Henry Ford's many biographies point, pointed to his weekly church attendance as a child as having shaped his values. In a congregation filled with folks who had either had just come to this country or were first generation Americans, Ford probably observed the poorest of the poor still offering what little they had to God. Their sacrifice was not lost on the future car builder. While other manufacturers chased the wealthy man's favor, Ford brought technology to forgotten Americans with a vehicle that powered them to a better life. The story of the widow's might in the Gospel of Mark was one that Ford surely heard several times in his youth. This parable reflected the nature of God's love and acceptance in a profound way. Jesus Christ opened up grace to everyone. Time and time again, he offered the value to those who were often seen as valueless. Jesus didn't turn his back on a person because of their station in life or judge someone by how much money they had. When we realize the universal nature of faith in Christ, when we understand he loved everyone, we begin to grasp the worth and potential of all of God's people. And so that's the, that's the spiritual lesson at the end of that particular uh, uh, chapter. And of course, the first three quarters of it talks about how the Model T was developed and where it came from and how it how it got to be the most successful car created during that time. At one point, one out of every, excuse me, three out of every four cars sold in the United States in the 19, late 19 teens and early 1920s were Model Ts. Wow. So, and, and, you're, yeah. and you love classic cars and you do res- restoration yourself. I have a 65 Mustang Fastback out of 1934 Auburn, you know, so uh, the, the 65 is pretty much my daily driver. You know, I still, it's got 200 and and probably a quarter of a million miles on it, close to it now, and I just drive it all. You know, I use it like it, it would have been used all those years ago. Yeah. <laughs> Unless your... it's raining, I don't. And it's not that it doesn't do well in the rain. I just don't trust anyone else in the rain, so I drive a newer car and it rains. <laughs> yeah. So, is it? It's a convertible, isn't it? No, it's a fastback. It's, it's a fastback. Okay. The... Oh, yeah. That, oh, that must be fun to yeah. drive. You get it a lot is. of most, a lot of looks. Fastback is the is the you know is the was the rarest body style of those three body styles that Ford had initially. But the fastback was also the body style that people tended to wreck the most because they would go out and race them. And so, uh, you know, I, I was, I'm very fortunate to have had a fastback the last 20, 30 years, 20, yeah. 25 years, I guess is what it's been. Yeah. Wow. And what was the, that other car that you restored? 1934 Auburn. And it's actually unrestored. It still has the original paint and interior and, the only thing that's ever been done to the engine is tune-ups and a ring job. So I keep it just like it left the factory in 1934. Wow. And from 10, from 20, from 10 to 15 feet away, it looks great. But if you go close, you're going to see the scratches and the pings and, and stuff like that, that, you know, 80 years of driving will do to a car. But oh, sure. they're only unrestored once. And if you've got one that runs good and looks good that is unrestored, you know, I... Uh, it's actually worth far more probably unrestored than it would be if I was to repaint it and and, uh, and fix a couple of holes in the interior. Well, I love so, the, yeah. I love that this devotional is geared toward uh, car lovers because there's a lot of people that you can send uh, this to and say, I know you love cars. You might find this to be uh, very inspirational. Yeah, and on top of that, the, the you know the two thirds of no, three quarters of each book. Is the history of the car, whatever it's been an L29 yeah. Cord or, a, a, you know, or, or use the Packard slogan, ask the man who owns one is in one of my chapters as well for the entire Packard Corporation or the 1958 Packard Hawk or, you know, I, the Studebaker. I mean, you're looking at all these things and people who read those stories, 
you know, the yeah, there's scripture at the beginning, but all that stuff in the middle is about the cars. And then we use something from that car story to lend into a devotional and tie it together. So it's a very subtle way of, of, of sharing faith. Yeah. Ace, it's been a delight, as always. I so look forward to our conversations, and I'm always glad to have you on. So thank you once again for taking the time today. I'm glad that the workers weren't here working on my edition so I could actually visit with you today. They should have have been done three months ago. It's still going on. (laughs) Well, good luck getting it done. Thank you so much for being on the program. You bet. Yep. Ace Collins has been my guest. Go to acecollins.com to see his library of books that he's written. 99 with 100 coming out in February. That's all the time we have for today. I'm so glad we spent this time together. I hope you were encouraged by kind words and the encouragement. And God wants us to love one another and be kind toward one another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another as God has forgiven us in Christ. Have a great night, everyone. See you tomorrow. Thanks for listening. Programming like this is made available through your support. Information available at MyFaithRadio.com.